0: Welcome to this Voice of Insurance special episode. I'm Mark Gagan. We all know about the protection gap and financial sustainability and resilience goals for the developing world set by global bodies such as the World Bank and the United Nations. We also know about the massive growth potential of many emerging economies and the role the insurance industry can play in enabling and accelerating their development. This episode goes into the detail of how to approach this major opportunity and answers some common questions and upends many common misconceptions. How much is insurance understood in developing nations? Is it seen simply as aid? Also how well are its strengths understood by donor nations? Should this kind of insurance be aiming for profit from day one or should it be more patient? How do we overcome modelling gaps and potentially crippling distribution costs in some of these nations? Will the realities of harder international markets and COVID-19 put development goals on the back burner? To answer these questions, it was a great privilege to be joined by Dame Inge Beale and Leslie Ndlovu of the Africa Risk Capacity Group, ARC. Both have pioneered work in this field and give a strong and practical flavour to this podcast. I highly recommend a listen. It might convince you that far from being just corporate social responsibility and the right thing to do, This is actually one of the brightest long-term opportunities in the global insurance market. Today's special episode has been organised by the Commonwealth Insurance Forum, the CIF, and kindly sponsored by the ARC. Set up in September 2019, the Commonwealth Insurance Forum was co-founded and is chaired by London market veteran Francis de Zulueta of Alpine Risk. Alpine Risk currently manages the CIF. Co-founded with Robert Lyle, co-founder of specialist London broker BPL, This not-for-profit organisation is seeking to ignite and accelerate insurance collaboration at all levels between the members of the 54-nation Commonwealth, with the added support of the Commonwealth Enterprise and Investment Council. The Commonwealth Insurance Forum has been formed as the UK's deepening and rapidly accelerating global trade links within the Commonwealth after leaving the European Union, and will seek to build insurance cooperation, education and networking based on the common legal and cultural ties that bind the global commonwealth of nations together for the mutual benefit of all members. The forum can be contacted on CIF at alpineriskservices.com or via Francis de Zulueta on LinkedIn. I will make sure the right links are provided in the podcast notes. Now let's get on with the podcast. Leslie Inninger, thanks so much for giving us your time to speak to us today. Leslie, I think it's important that we just get a really brief overview of Africa risk capacity and the work that you're doing.
1: Thank you very much, Mark, and thanks to Inga. I'm really delighted to be with you today. The African Risk Capacity is an innovative sovereign risk transfer mechanism that allows countries to transfer the risks that they face against natural disasters uh, to the international insurance markets. So as ARC, as we refer to ourselves, we pool and aggregate the risks that exist in all the African countries and then that allows us to have an efficient placement into the global reinsurance market.
0: And there's another side to the business, Leslie, there's more an educational side to the business as well.
1: Absolutely, you're right. ARC has two components to it. I've just described to you the insurance carrier function, but we also have a development agency that is attached to us, rather creatively named ARC Agency, and the role of the agency is to help countries understand the risks that they face from natural disasters, be it drought, flood, or tropical cyclone, and then to work with the countries to develop contingency plan and also mitigation measures. And some of that mitigation involves a transfer of the risk to the insurance markets. And this is where we come in as the insurance company.
0: Well, I'm going to ask both Inga and Leslie this question, but Leslie, I'll start with you. So out of the schemes and placements that you've managed so far, what do you think are the sort of schemes that have made the most positive impact and benefited the most people?
1: So when you look at the value of insurance in disaster risk financing, it is extremely important because $1 that we pay out in insurance claims has a multiplier effect of $4. So essentially getting the claims paid early helps the community not take more drastic measures that would be uneconomic in the long run. So for example, if you think about it, if you're a farmer somewhere in in Africa and you've just experienced a drought, if you don't get the claim paid very quickly, it means that you then have to eat into next year's seed or have to take your children out of school, whereas the quick payment of claims allows you to avoid the negative consequences that come from the compounding of these risks. In our case, we use parametric insurance because it allows us to then have this speedy payout. And then in addition to just the insurance itself, as I alluded to in my opening remarks, by the time a country is in a position to take out insurance, it has already gone through the process of understanding the risk that it faces, the number of people that are exposed, and developing other contingency measures. So insurance doesn't act in isolation. It's part of a much broader ecosystem to help countries become more resilient. And this is extremely important, as you can imagine, as we grapple with the impact of climate change.
0: So Leslie, those schemes, are they at a government level or those at an individual level?
1: We work at all levels, but the most successful schemes so far have been at the government level because the cost of distribution is still extremely high. What we are seeing in the marketplace is the development of aggregators who use technologies, smartphones, apps, and so forth, to aggregate groups of farmers, which then become a viable insurance unit. We recently signed a partnership with Pula Advisors, which is one of the leading aggregators in Africa. And this is part of our strategy to reach more people with insurance it's mutually beneficial in the sense that if we reach more people then we have a more diversified book for insurance which lowers our reinsurance costs while also allowing us to have a much greater impact by covering more people on the ground
0: so it's right to assume that agricultural risk is some of your prime focus at the moment it is
1: because in africa agriculture contributes a third of the GDP and provides two thirds of the jobs. So it is really a critical component of the economies in Africa.
0: Inga, you've been very active in this sphere. What sort of schemes have impressed you the most and, and why?
2: Well, I haven't been necessarily that on the ground with some of these schemes, but schemes, and it's very interesting, actually, when I go back to when we started, first of all, talking about microinsurance. so I'm going back now quite a long time, probably 15 years or so, and I worked in a company where we were trying to really develop microinsurance. And I was really worried at that time that it would, it would be like betting for people. And we were meant to be helping people understand that if they bought insurance, it was to just to protect themselves against something bad happening. And we said, well, the only way we can make microinsurance work is if we have parametric triggers, which is what Leslie just talked about, because it was the only way that made it simple enough. And cheap enough to be able to pay out in microinsurance then but I had a problem with that having come through the traditional field of insurance and paying out when some damage actually had been occurred to the policyholder suddenly we were saying well actually if it doesn't rain or it does rain too much you're going to get some money and I had a real problem with that in the beginning of understanding that that was the right thing to do when you were introducing people to insurance for the first time because basically you were saying why don't you just bet on the weather now I've moved on since that time and now I feel very comfortable with it. But I've been involved in schemes, for instance, in India, where you had the farmers, they would get their fertilizer bags and they would just add a little bit, you know, maybe a few rupees onto their bag of fertilizer and then they would automatically have some insurance. So things like that, because the problem of getting this out to farmers in very rural areas and you're talking about a lot of people and not much premium being paid, you've got to make it as simple as possible. You can't have traditional insurance records, and things like that. I've been involved in things like that. I've also been involved in some schemes in the Middle East, particularly aimed at some women, actually. And this was again, was some time ago, but it was trying to give very cheap health insurance to women so that they could have access to health care when they were going to be giving birth and things like that. So I've been involved in a few schemes at a fairly high level, tending to be more in the, perhaps in a reinsurer position where you're actually providing the financing for it rather than the actual upfront delivery of it. But I, I think there's been perhaps not enough progress in this field, if I think about when I started learning about particularly micro-insurance many years ago.
0: Inga, you've been very involved with initiatives such as Ensuring Women's Futures. Do you think those human development goals are as important as the financial development goals that we're setting ourselves?
2: Well, you would expect me to say this, they're both just as important as each other. Because what I found is that you can't have human development going on if you don't have financial wealth and financial support to encourage that. And I remember when we were looking, when I was at Lloyd's of London still, and we were looking at the purpose of Lloyd's, and we came up with it was enabling human progress, because insurance fundamentally has enabled human progress over the centuries. But the only way it's been doing that, it's, it's had money to back it but it's enabled people to go off and do new things, crazy things, whatever it is. It's helped humans progress throughout time and get more and more sophisticated. And so you've got to have the finance, the financial support, and you've got to have goals to support the human development. I would have said that right now, with all of this pushback against the model of capitalism where profit for shareholders was the only sort of game in town. I think now more and more people around the world are much more interested in what those human development goals are. And they're not, it's not just about paying lip service to them. I think they are vitally important. But obviously, you've got to have financial goals to sit alongside and support that.
0: Leslie, I'd love to hear what you've got to say on this. Obviously, you've got your, You're also half of ARC is a development agency in itself. So what's your view on this?
1: My own personal evolution on the topic has been quite interesting. And uh, I share Inga's perspective as well, that in the beginning, I think these sort of schemes were viewed as benevolent schemes, as sort of corporate social responsibility. But now the thinking is progressing and uh, we're getting to a point where viable business can be launched on the back of this. And what is happening also is that the UN has gotten involved through the principles of sustainable insurance, and we have seen this move to map the sustainable development goals back to the activities of insurers, whether it's combating climate change, whether it's improving food security, it's reducing poverty. And then when you frame it in those terms, I think people suddenly realize that insurance has a big role to play in Insuring, of course, but also ensuring and supporting uh, human progress.
2: And now, uh, Mark, actually, may I just add there? Leslie just brought a, a, a super point to the forefront, which I hadn't mentioned as well, which is the value that insurance has against mitigating things. You know, not when just things go wrong, insurance pays out, but it's that risk analysis and then the support for communities that you can say, actually, you, we can make you much more resilient. And it's that combination. And I I remember there was um, a big conference once where we were looking at the Arctic opening up for drilling. And of course, we had a big conference on it and Greenpeace show up protesting, saying, you know, what are you doing ensuring Arctic drilling, we actually invited them into the conference. And we said, look, what we're doing is actually making it much better and safer for the environment. And we had a really good dialogue with Greenpeace following that. And so that benefit of what we do as a whole sector for mitigating risk, making the world safer is sometimes overlooked a little.
0: Leslie, I'd like to ask you about that in terms of what you're doing on on the ground in Africa, is a lot of what you're doing, bringing that modeling and some of those some of that expertise and foresight that some of the the governments that you're working with can then use how much of it is really about the resilience of that country rather than about a particular scheme in itself
1: you're absolutely right in that sense that as i said earlier insurance doesn't really exist in isolation we are helping the entire country to become more resilient because with the goal in mind to eventually take out an insurance policy There's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of understanding the risks, modeling the risks. And as we go through that journey with the government, you hear comments such as, oh my God, I didn't realize that we had this kind of exposure because we are going really into the detail in terms of if you had a drought similar to the one that you had in 1989, at this stage, how many people would be in need of food aid? How much would it cost? What would the logistics to bring it in be? So even if a country at the end of the day decides not to take out an insurance policy for whatever reason, going through the process with us is extremely beneficial to them and puts them in a much better position to be able to manage the natural disasters as they occur. So even as a career insurer, I don't always view an insurance contract being the ultimate goal. Because as we have already agreed, I think the more important objective is to ensure human progress and make sure that people globally are protected from the effects of natural disasters. Insurance is really the icing on the cake.
0: What about that cultural attitude to insurance, perhaps in countries that where there isn't a lot of insurance and in the, there isn't a lot of insurance penetration, and also that attitude, perhaps from the donor side, as to whether this is corporate social responsibility or is this genuine commercial insurance, which has a profit motive at the end of it? Do you think, for example, do you think some of these schemes should be always seeking to make a profit from day one? Or is that not necessarily the goal?
1: So in my view, the schemes need to be profitable if you want them to be sustainable. Because if they are relying only on the goodwill of donors, then they are almost by definition, not sustainable. So then the challenge becomes, how do you make it uh, profitable? Inga mentioned this earlier, that the big barrier in the past was just the cost of distribution, because you're trying to reach people in very remote parts to collect what is, at the end of the day, not a whole lot of premium. However, with the emergence of technology now, you know, with smartphones, with the USSD codes, this allows you to reach many people. Inga also mentioned the bags of fertilizer. That the farmers buy that have embedded within the packaging a QR code that can be scanned to get access to insurance. So these activities have dramatically lowered the cost of insurance, and you are seeing us get to a point now where these schemes can be run profitable. So we're still a long way from hitting the very high profit margins. But to me, I think the fact that the schemes now break even is a step in the right direction. Because again, with technology, the cost of distribution is going to get lower. The cost of satellites and getting the data that you need for the parametric insurance products is also getting lower. The number of people that are signing up is increasing, which brings economies of scale, increases the level of diversification. So pure commercial schemes are, in my mind, not too far out in the future. But again, like any emerging industry, it does take a long time for you to get to the really profitable life cycle. And you see it in other sectors, you know, particularly the, the tech sector.
0: Inga, what's your view on this? Do you think perhaps the aid side of it could be that some of the premiums could be donated, for example, that the premiums could be paid by donor nations?
2: I think that can be a great way to start. But what I think so important about the insurance thing is that we don't suddenly want all the states the governments to be the providers of insurance because otherwise the insurance sector runs the risk of not really being that relevant anymore and when i've seen in some of even some of the mature markets and you see how the governments have stepped in whether it's in the US for flood terrorism in the UK for flood terrorism in other parts of the world we never get that back into the insurance sector it's basically gone forever and we have to get that balance right. So I think it's great that there can be donations to kickstart these programs, but it ultimately over time, and the time may be longer than a pure commercial portfolio expectation where you might expect you know, your profits to start turning in much earlier. So the expectations of time are a bit longer, but I think it's important to get it fundamentally back into a commercial viable role or model and not rely because once you've got, government states paying and getting involved, it's very rarely turns back the other way.
1: And Mark, if I can just jump in there and say, once again, I completely agree with Inga. Donors can play an important role in terms of catalyzing the creation of the schemes and bringing them to life, but they need to eventually be able to stand on their own two
0: feet. And Leslie, for yourself, for your own sustainability, presumably that's extremely important that ARC has to be a going concern at the end of the year, because you're a balance sheet insurance company when it comes down to it.
1: Absolutely, that's the case. And uh, we did receive concessionary capital to start from KFW and from DFID. But again, the way I see it is that it's really capital to get started. And as we prove the concept, then we will be able to get other investors. So if you think about how the investor base is going to evolve, in the beginning, it's the development financial institutions then you're going to get in the impact investors that are looking for a small return and not looking to lose money, but are focused on the impact that you have. And then at some point as it evolves, then we'll get the purely commercial investors. But again, it's important to think about it as a life cycle and it might take much more time than it would take for a pure commercial venture. Do
0: you think... Inga, that the insurance industry is patient enough to deal with all of this and to seed this and to just stay with it to help develop insurance in these markets?
2: Insurers, we used to perhaps have a bit more patience, I would have said, and accounting rules used to be different, of course, in the old days, where you could build up reserves and things like that, and and new accounting rules mean that you're having to report this quarterly profit and you know investors want this short-term profit all the time. So that can affect things, but fundamentally... Core professional insurers and reinsurers are in it for the long run. We are always thinking really long term. And what I found when you do the private public partnerships is that often the time frame for some governments is too short for the insurers. So you can't actually get this development going in the long run because people may be only in power for a few years. You know, it chops and changes a lot in governments. In some countries, it depends whether you've got dictatorships and things like that. But often, it's actually difficult to get a really long-term public-private partnership going because government isn't prepared to commit longer than their period in office. So it's good, but absolutely insurers are used to being in it for the long term
0: do you agree with that?
1: Absolutely, because on our side, we've had reinsurance backing from our inception in 2014. And the conversations that I have with my reinsurers are not about how profitable we're going to be next month, but it's really how we can develop the market together over the long run. Arc is a little bit unique in the sense that we are a treaty-based organization which allows us to function as a local insurer and reinsurer in 34 states in Africa. So then this puts us in a position where we can facilitate efficient placement of natural catastrophe risk or agricultural risk in the global market. Because if you think about it, if a typical Swiss reinsurance company, not naming any names, wanted to access the market in Africa, they would then have to speak to partners in each of the individual markets Whereas now they can just speak to us and we already have operations in all the various countries and we can deliver to them a portfolio that's robustly priced, that's already diversified across the regions. You have one conversation and the placement is done. So we are also, we are creating the market, but we're also making placement more efficient, which is beneficial to the beneficiaries of the insurance schemes because it lowers the cost. And is also beneficial to the international reinsurance market because it also lowers the cost of placement so we are really in the nexus of the evolution of these markets and it's something that we are really happy about because going back to what you were saying earlier it allows us to deliver the dual mandates of being able to have an impact on the ground covering lots of people but also being financially sustainable
0: a question for Inga. We've been talking about short-termism, both on the political side and also sometimes on the insurance side with the quarterly porting requirements of public companies. We're currently in a hardening global insurance market and reinsurance market. Do you think that's going to affect appetites for exposure to these emerging markets when perhaps big returns are available elsewhere in mature markets that people know extremely well? Do you think it might be a problem for allocation of capital to these kinds of markets?
2: Well, Mark, you've touched on a, on a real... Hot potato, as far as I'm concerned, when you talk about hard and soft markets, I have detested those terms for some years now. I would love to think of the insurance sector as being much more sophisticated than just following these cycles. Now, when I started underwriting in the 80s, That was what we did all the prices went up and then they all went down we surely are beyond that we have to have moved beyond that the billions we've spent on modeling and the sophistication we have now around understanding risk one would hope that we're giving fair pricing to the customers and that's how we're pricing risk of course supply and demand come into play But no one that I've heard over all, you know, for many, many years now has said there's a shortage of capital to invest. So there's not a a shortage of supply in a way. And there's no shortage of demand, but we just haven't been very good at perhaps creating all the demand. But anyway, put that to one side. People need to diversify. And I think companies have been looking for this diversification for some years. They've gone into new markets, a lot of them developing markets. They've had their fingers burnt a bit. They didn't understand the differences. You do need some patience, but there is so much underinsurance in some of these countries. And of course it's going to take a little bit more effort to understand and then persevere with it. But there will be and can be huge demand And some profits, that dreaded word profit for some people, but there has to be profit. There can be. And the diversification benefit, of course, will be huge at the end of the day. And there are many more risks that we can, I think, start to cover as an insurance sector. I just think the opportunity is there. But people tend to go the easier route. Yeah, many people, I mean, humans, we tend to be lazy just in our own lives. And we take the easiest route most of the time to take that little bit of extra effort and do something new. You know, it just takes a bit more. And so many people are used to, oh, well, I'll just go back to the markets. I know, know I don't want to go and do something new. We need to have fresh minds, people who want to go and explore these new things in insurance. And I know that we can get them. And I know that the capital is there to support it. So we can go out and do it. And I would just encourage anyone who's listening to this to really be much more open minded. There's fantastic resources. I mean, if you've been in touch with the Insurance Development Forum and other places like that, just think this is very much linked to the Commonwealth. Many of the Commonwealth countries, the insurance penetration is very, very, very low. Many of the Commonwealth countries have English law applying these aren't strange places for a lot of the companies already operating in the world of insurance. So I just think there's a fantastic opportunity if people put that little bit of extra effort in.
1: Yeah. And just building on that, Inga, if you look at things from the solvency two standpoint, you know, where capital has come much more into focus, then the point that you raise on diversification is spot on, because then the capital is not all the same. If you're looking at it from an ROE standpoint, if you're allocating some of your capital to emerging markets and you're getting that diversification benefit, improving your ROE rather than piling in onto the risks that you already have in spades within your own book. So what this needs... It's just a fresh way of thinking about it and not just the traditional way. Yeah.
2: And I remember over years trying, going off to universities and things, talking to would-be insurers or would-be insurance hires. When you tell them about the value of insurance and what it does... People get very excited. They go, "Why well, I didn't know about that. You know, I just thought it was about insuring my motor car. And suddenly people get very passionate. And with the importance of purpose for corporations these days, and we know that the next generation of talent want to work for companies with a purpose. And I think following the COVID-19 pandemic, this has come to the forefront even more. It's a great, I mean, insurance, if we can get across what our purpose is in a, in a much more broader, holistic way, we can hire the best.
0: I'd like to ask Leslie talk about some specifics, some specific places. We're talking about the excitement of this project, of this opportunity. In which Commonwealth countries at the moment do you think there are the most interesting opportunities to be found with the greatest potential for development?
1: In my case, it will definitely be Africa, because if you look at the protection gap, it's huge. We talked earlier about just the importance of the agricultural sector and how much more can be done there from an insurance standpoint. If we are increasing the insurance penetration from sub 1% to 2% to 3%, you know we are traveling the size of the industry, and that's going to create the critical mass for a sustainable insurance industry in, in the long run. Whereas when you think about it, say, in the developed markets, winning market share is very difficult because you have to take it off someone. Whereas in the emerging markets that I work in, you are creating a completely new market. And I find that personally exhilarating and motivating, although I'm not quite in the next generation that Inga was talking about.
0: Leslie, Inga mentioned COVID-19. Obviously, in 2020, we couldn't have a podcast without talking about it. How has COVID-19 affected insurance development goals this year?
1: COVID 19 has hit the economy really hard because if you think about it in terms of multiple levels, the first one on the balance sheet, it's uh, had a negative impact because assets have been marked down, interest rates have come down. And if you're discounting your liabilities, then your liabilities have increased, lowering your solvency. Secondly, it has made people more cautious. So if you were thinking about something, doing something new or something exotic, it's probably been pushed back one more year. And then thirdly, in some instances, I can understand why people have withdrawn cover or specified that, or clarified rather, that COVID-19 is not covered. But if the expectation from the customers was that business interruption would be covered or any illness as a result of COVID would have been covered, I think when customers discover that fact not covered, then this will lead to some disappointment and leads us down the track of, mistrust of the insurance uh, industry. Again, being somebody from the industry, I mean, I understand completely the reasons why the steps have been taken by insurers. But if, again, you're approaching this from the point of view of the customer, then it damages trust. And then maybe to switch tech and talk about the positives, I have seen that there's the launch now of parametric business interruption covers and COVID-19 has accelerated No doubt the development of those type of products. You have seen, again, the emergence of the outbreaks and epidemics products, similar to the pandemic emergency funding facility from the World Bank. But then this demonstrates, I think, the capacity of the insurance industry to innovate and to come up with new products that answer the needs of the customers. So there has been, on the one hand, some negative aspects, but also we can see some positive that's come out of COVID-19, even though I hesitate to say anything positive has come out of COVID-19.
0: So Leslie, do you think that there'll be some more, there'll be more to see from you, from Africa Risk Capacity in pandemic coverage?
1: Absolutely, we are working on, an, on a pandemic cover, but it's not going to be a standalone COVID cover. We're looking to rope in some additional diseases, Ebola, Marburg, Lassa fever and, and meningitis. In fact, we had the product already under development before COVID-19, and COVID-19 has given us a lot of data to work with, and we believe that incorporating a COVID cover would again be extremely relevant for the client base that we are serving, and it would also help us create the diversification in our product portfolio that we are after.
0: How do you think the insurance industry, and this is I'm referring to probably the most likely listeners to this podcast in the traditional insurance industry around the developed nations in the world, how should they best engage with these opportunities? If you could ask them to do one thing, what what would it be?
1: I have a lot of difficulty asking for one thing. But I'll ask for several things. The first one, what we need is the support of the reinsurance industry because right, we're originating those risks, we're aggregating them, but we don't have the balance sheet strength to carry all of them. So we need the capacity of the global reinsurance markets to be able to place them. Uh, secondly, I think we need capital. We're a growing business that needs capital to support our risk-carrying activities. So capital is helpful. And the third point will be, I think what Inga alluded to, on the donor side, we would need sort of premium support to get some of these schemes going, because insurance is difficult to explain conceptually, but if a farmer somewhere has benefited from getting their premiums paid by somebody else, and then after a drought, you know, we show up and say, by the way, it's not a total loss. Here's a check compensating you for the losses you've just suffered, I think That explains insurance in a much more succinct way.
0: Ingo, a call to action from you.
2: For me, it would be about making our message simple. And I don't say this because people around the world aren't intelligent. It's nothing to do with that. But in my experience, it's the language we use can put people off. And I think some of us, some firms are doing a great job and they're using much more plain English, but it's about converting our message into something that resonates with the audience. And I talk about this partly because of the work I've done with Ensuring Women's Futures, which is this program of work where we started to look at in the UK, actually, but it's the same findings I'm sure are going to be all over the world, is there's a huge financial gap between men and women. and One of the factors we looked at as to why women or girls don't seem as interested in money and looking after their finances as men is because they just don't find it interesting enough. And, and now we've out of the back of that research, which started five years ago, we're now we've got lots of programs of work. But one of the programs of work is actually education for girls, but in a way that makes money seem much more tangible and understandable and in words that they can relate to and I think that's the important thing about translating the insurance message to people who aren't used to insurance let's try and use the language that they'll understand rather than the terminology that we're so used to and everybody every company can actually do that and probably most of our customers would benefit at the end of the day as well not just the new ones.
0: Well, Ingrid and Leslie, have come to the end of the list of my questions. Unless you've got anything to add, I just wanted to thank you so much for giving up your very valuable time for speaking to us today. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank
0: you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out.